This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Duff Bell in this installment of the Healdsburg Wine and Food Experience. Duff is widely recognized as one of Sonoma County's most accomplished vineyardists. Duff has been farming wine grapes in the area for over 40 years. A strong proponent of sustainable farming, he supports the implementation of the guidelines established by the California Association of Wine Grape Growers and the Sonoma County Wine Grape Commission. Duff and his wife, Nancy, own and lease a total of 80 acres of their own vineyards in the Dry Creek and Russian River Valleys. The Bevel family lives in the heart of Dry Creek Valley, surrounded by vineyards. So, Duff Bevel, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today. It's such a pleasure having you. We're here at the beautiful Hotel Hillsburg for the inaugural Hillsburg Food and Wine Experience. It's just great that you were here. Now, I have to ask, I mentioned that you know you intended to specialize in fruit and nut production, but there was a summer job in Dry Creek Valley in 1973. Kind of shifted things a little bit for you. How did you get here? Uh, one of my instructors over, I, I attended school, I was going to community college at that point in, uh, in Reading, Shasta College, and studying fruit nut production. And I had you know, great lines were not nowhere on my radar. And I um, had a chance to come over here uh, who, to work for a friend of one of my instructors, one of my horticulture instructors in, uh, in Reading. Uh, came over, that was in, in uh, 1973. And... Uh, Got here and had no intention of leaving. Once I got here, it was time for me. It was time to quit school and go in the real world. And this is much more appealing to me than uh, <laughs> staying in school. So that's uh, and just just purely by chance, Healdsburg, and purely by chance, it's uh, wine grapes because I knew nothing. I couldn't couldn't name a the only wine grape I could probably name at that point was something called Chablis or Early Burgundy, which are just labels on bottles of wine. Right, that's Gal- gallons of gallo. Gallons of gallo. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the good old days. But what started you on your path to wine then? Just stayed here. Uh, worked for a fellow named Joe Vogelson, who, it's, it's a funny full circle story. His nine year old, he only had one son, and that, that baby was nine, nine months old when I came over here. And when he grew up in his late 20s, he came to work for me, and he's not a partner of mine. So my wife and I own the management company. She and I own dinner properties too, but the, we own the management company. And uh, Matt Vogelson is, uh, is now my uh, you know, junior partner in the company. Well, I mentioned in your intro that you're Sonoma, one of Sonoma County's most accomplished vineyardists. What is a vineyardist? Vineyardist? <laughs> it's a term of art I'm not familiar with. I'm sorry. Well, if you if you pursued a degree at at uh, uh, you know college or university level, you would uh, you would get a degree, a degree in viticulture. Okay. So a vineyardist is just some, someone who's who's involved in managing vineyard vineyard properties. So it's similar to a viticulturalist or a farm manager, or it could or could not necessarily have the degree that goes with it. Okay, I think that, I think that. Would I be think good. it's kind of a cool term. I just never really. Yeah, yeah, and I think of myself as a farmer first, okay. and then uh, who happens to be uh, you know, farming uh, wine grapes. So what's your day like? Well, it's very different. It was forty nine years ago. Uh, you know, I kind of started from the bottom, although not quite at the bottom. Uh, my, uh, one of my, my instructor back in Reading uh, promoted me as uh, uh, supervisor material. And uh, so he hired me as a foreman. 
So I got double minimum wage. Minimum wage at the time was a buck eighty-five, so I was paid about three fifty an hour uh, to be a foreman. Wow! So the first two years, uh, I was in the hot seat. It was tough because there's you know there's a certain amount at age twenty-two. There's a lot you don't know. You probably you should know that you don't know it, but uh, I learned that uh, there's a lot of things I didn't know, and it was a real interesting experience. So seventy-three. That was seventy-three. So in seventy-five, we had a recession, and everything kind of fell back on itself. I mean, what, what drove the, the wine? Great or wine boom in the, in the in the early 70s started in I think 68, and I think the the most commonly accepted story was Bank of America prepared a, uh, a financial report on the wine industry, and uh, that how it was a place to be if you're investing money, and so a lot of money came into uh, uh, I, I'm assuming all over California, but certainly Napa Valley and uh, Sonoma County, and uh, there's just a wave of investment, so you had a lot of limited partnerships. Uh, that uh, invested money here, a lot of interdevelopment. So you, when I came into Dry Creek Valley, I remember coming over what's called Canyon Road, coming over from Geyserville, and coming up to the stop sign, and all I could see around you know the 10th of March was a sea of white blossoms in Dry Creek Valley. And it was all the prune trees. And you drive up and down Dry Creek Road, and you couldn't see past the trees of, of the orchards that were all in full bloom because it was all, it was all orchards. And there are vineyards there, too, most of the hills on the edges of the valley where the soil was a little leaner. But the rich bottomland soils were all orchards because that's where you made the money. And, it, and historically, the belief was that uh, you couldn't get the best wine grapes down there. But the valley soils, the trees needed more water, and you get, get by with less water in the hillsides. Uh, you know, some of the vineyards, there, and there's still some left up there right now that are, you know, well over 100 years old, and they're still dry farmed. They never... You're talking about one or two ton per acre vineyards, right? Uh, but the reason right. the vineyards did well is because you could dry farm them with you know your particular farming practices, whereas you couldn't get away with that with the orchards. You needed to have higher production to make that make it economical. So the vineyards were sort of the, that the marginal soil, so to speak. But those marginal soils are also the ones that we know now produce the higher quality, uh, the highest quality of uh, wines. So right. All that stuff, which is transitioning back then, and, you know, a lot of everybody made mistakes. One of the vineyards we farmed it was Pinot Noir that was planted in the early 70s. It was planted in the Dry Creek Valley, the sort of midsection of Dry Creek Valley. It was never good quality Pinot Noir because no one knew that it was too hot. Right. We, didn't, we didn't have any of that yeah. into, uh, institutional knowledge yet. Well, now we know where the good Pinots are grown. Now we know where the good Cabernets are grown, generally speaking. And where the good Zinfandels are grown. And the good Zins, yeah. So a lot of there's still a lot of, you know, uh, it's Dry Creek, for example. I live in Dry Creek. And... Uh, uh, the history of Dry Creek is all, they've always talked about how good quality good Zinfandel's grown in Dry Creek. It's in Sonoma Valley too, and other areas. But in Dry Creek, it's sort of the, the name for Dry Creek red wines historically. You know, the first ones are first Zinfandel planted in Dry Creek was in the eighteen late eighteen sixties, like eighteen sixty nine, I think, was the date that I dug up and found maybe eighteen seventy. And it took it took thirty years for Zinfandel viticulture to come from the town of Sonoma area. 1830s. It took 30 years to finally have find, so I could find records where it was actually uh, recorded, that it was, it was grown and production was measured in Hillsburg. So it took 30 years to travel that distance to finally have an impact on local uh, farming. So it has a place in Dry Creek since the late, you know, mid, almost mid-1800s. None of those vineyards are, are still there because Flocksher got them, but, uh, but after we went through the wave, wave of Flocksher killing off all of our vineyards, the most, the newer plantings uh, St. George rootstock was the most common one planted, and there's still some of those vineyards uh, still here now. 
in Dry Creek. Uh, I know we're, what, 1903, uh, 1922, there's a number of them. Wow. Yeah, they're still there. They're, all head trained, I assume. They're all head trained, yeah. yeah Charles Wires didn't show up until the 70s, until late 60s. And as I understand it, this is, again, Dry Creek Valley lore, yeah. but as I understand it, the really the, the, the vines that were planted up on the hillside were really for personal consumption for the farmers that had uh, come to, and they, you know, because their crops, they, they wanted the cash crops on the floor, Valley floor. Right. But that was really for personal consumption, and then they were like, hey, that's pretty good juice. And It may have been, because, I mean, obviously, if they, if, if they were planted in the early 20th century, that means, and they're still in the ground now, that means they had to survive prohibition, and that lasted 14 years. Right. So, so uh, yeah. So, they, so at that point, you, and I've, I've heard really fun, entertaining stories about how, uh, you know, some of the locals would, uh, you know, bootleg, you know, they, they put built stills in the backyard. Not everybody, but some of them did. And so you'd, you'd distill your, your wine juice. So I've got a bathtub. <laughs> I've got a bathtub in my house until 1907. And if you, and I only know this because we restored the house. We actually moved the house from a cross bracket road onto my property. And it had a clock with bathtub in it. And when we restored the tub, when we flipped it over, cast in the tub was 1911. So the house was built in 07. The tub was cast in 1911, so that means for those few years, they had no indoor running water, right. I'm sure. Um, but anyways, what was fascinating about the tub is it was porcelain, but, and you know if you've ever been in any bathtub, you look at the tub where the latches are that close are open, this one you got to put the rubber plug in it. Right. Well, there's an overflow, that's why the back of the tub, there's an overflow tube that comes out, so the thing doesn't overflow into the bathroom, right? So right there is the overflow tube. Well. Four to six inches below, right up to and below that overflow tube, all the enamel was was uh, eroded away, and it was, the, the porcelain was perfect underneath and perfect above. Got any ideas why? Wine? They were yeah. making wine in the They're tub. Red wine. Yeah, because you'd have the cap, right? And the cap would be you know skin contact, all right. the skins, and they'd float to, to the, the top, top right? And in the volume of the tub, which is about twenty-four inches deep, I'm thinking, yeah, that about the cap ratio, size of the cap to the wine volume, sounds about right. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing for many, many years, somebody made red wine in that bathtub. You still have the bathtub, right? I still have the bathtub. I sit in that tub on a regular basis, yeah. <laughs> without the without, without the grapes, the <laughs> without the grapes, without the wine. So that so that was uh, so that was clearly and even uh, even in the absence of prohibition, I'm sure people were making their own wine. Because everybody had wine. When I got here, all the old Italians that I got got to know, some better than others, but they, they always made wine. They always had a cellar or out in the barn where they, they, made, they made their own wine. You know, and you drink it literally, you drink them out of those, you know, lot, you know, shot glasses about that big. Right. Or, or jelly jars. Jelly jars. Yeah. yeah. yeah the jelly jar story, that's true. Yeah. They, there's no fancy stemmed glassware. Well, it's good wine. Oh, it's good wine, yeah. Real, real high, you know, really high alcohol, always some residual sugar, the ones I tasted anyways. And so it's really, you know, you want to drink more of it, but gets you in trouble. <laughs> oh, real quick. <laughs> you know, we, we're talking about oh, the way back days. Yeah. Right? But today, we have a very different take on how we do farming. And I understand you're a big advocate of sustainable farming practices. What, what is sustainable farming? Well, you know, I mean, a real, a real summary is, is, and I think this is the easiest way to look at it, if, if we could pass on our land to an, another generation that's in better shape, certainly equal to in better shape than we received it, that, I think that's, that's a key component of it. But, it, you know, the, 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 the trilogy of, of uh, sustainability has to be, uh, you know, uh, economically viable. If, you, if you're not successful, there's no having philosophy. Right. Do not pass on anything on if you're not, not successful. If you lose it because you're not economically uh, 
violent means nothing. And you have to be sensitive to the environment, sensitive to your, your community. So within each one of those, and your, each one of those, so, the, so there's economics of it. Uh, the, the sensitivity community is uh, your employees. You know, they're part of your community, your neighbors. You know, when you have uh, your agrarian neighbors, your non-agrarian neighbors, that's part of the, having an uh, understanding of the, the importance of that and what it means. And of course, the environment. You know, uh, sending sediment or you know, people love to go right to the pesticide story. You know, poison the rivers, poison the environment, uh, or sediment would be a big issue. Is uh, you know, preventing sediment into the rivers for the popular fish population. So all those things have to be addressed, and that's that's what we've done now. So the sustainability program that we're all involved with, that we're now 100 percent. You know, it's 99.87 percent. A real high percentage of 100 percent. Third-party certifications in Snowman County. We're the first ones to ever do that. So, um, so within that, you review your farming practices every year. And we have a workbook you go through, and it's you know, there's hundreds of, of point, bullet points that you have to ask yourself that question, answer that question, and then after you've done that, you actually set goals for next year. You know, what something simple like, uh, yeah, by next year we will completely get rid of all of our iridescent lights and we'll have nothing but LEDs. Okay. Right, simple, something simple like that. But there's more complex stuff. We're going to uh, convert to uh, no-tillage cultivation. Completely stop uh, the factor of erosion. Better for the soil. You know, the, the, uh, you know tillage, if you did, when you plow well to have gardens, you turn the soil upside down, and it's wonderful. Put your fingers in that nice new soil. But you're actually destroying the structure of the soil every time you do that. So in agriculture, it's the same thing. When you plow the soils or disc the soils, you're actually damaging the structure of that soil in that area that you've, uh, you've uh, tilled. So if you can leave a no-till uh, and manage uh, the cover crop, so it, it's minimal competition to your to your vines for nutrients and water. Now we're water sensitive more and more in California. Oh, absolutely. So these are all these balances. I mean, it's harder work. I remember years ago someone said, you know, uh, farming's not rocket science. It's harder. You really have got all these other components that, that come into play, and you and some of them, you know, unlike breeding fruit flies, where every 48 hours you have a new generation of fruit flies, and, and you see what impact you had on them, you got to wait a whole year. You got to you got to change practice, wait an entire year, and then evaluate it and see what value there was or wasn't with that modification of your farming practice. So, so all of those things come into play. It's a constant uh, reevaluation of your behavior. Um, it's not. You know, and we and we have to reinforce that idea with our, our with the people working for us, or manager levels uh, working for us, supervisor manager levels working for us. Just because we did it last year like that doesn't mean that's what it's going to be this year. And it's easy to do that. It's easy to say that's how I did it last year. I'm I'm watching the clock. I'm watching the growth of vines. Now it's time to do this. It may not be. And you always want to rethink and and observe uh, your actions in the field and see if there's a better way to do it. So at the end of the year. You, you reevaluate your goals that you set for you for the previous from the previous year. You either did it, accomplished it, or not. And if you didn't understand why, and if you did understand why, and then you set new goals for the coming year. So that's part of the sustainability program. You're constantly evaluating and trying to do better each year in your farming operation. Duff, I've been doing this a long time, but I think one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard was just now when you said, "Farming isn't rocket science; it's harder." Yes, you can, it can be easy. If, if you don't think enough about it, and if you really want to do better, it's a hard task. Well, like this year, you know, if you, if you had a farming program 15 years ago, it would certainly include a lot more rainfall than we have today. 
So if you're still thinking farming like you did 15 years ago, you've got a real problem on management because it, the world has changed. Whatever the reason is, doesn't matter. We're down to rainfall levels that are normal in San Fernando Valley in Southern California. You know, so you've know, so you you've got to address it. You can have a farm plan this year, and if you get normal rain, good, we'll move ahead. If you don't have normal rain, what do you do? And so, like, right now, we're thinking, we're managing, we're rethinking how we use our drip system, which is already very efficient uh, use of, of water and irrigation management. We learned something last year, and we've adjusted by accident last year, but we're paying attention. And when it happened, we went, hey, look what we just learned. So we've applied some of those things more in our program this, this year, and it's because of drought. Well, we're facing a lot of things uh, due to climate change, drought, sustainability, which is what you're talking about. And one of the things that we're moving more towards, obviously, are electric vehicles, which is going to lead into my next question about the Ford Pro project that you're involved with. It is pretty exciting. Tell me about it. Yeah, so so the event that we're having this week here in Hillsburg, the Food and Wine event, it started in... Uh, it's the conversation started back in March of 2020, and obviously March of 2020, <laughs> a lot of things were changing and happening. So uh, the plan was in March of 2020, let's plan for 2021. Well, that got bumped back an entire year now. All those parts and pieces were being put together, uh, but we also recognize it's going to be postponed until 2020 this year. Along the way, August of 2021, Carissa Cruz, our president of our Stone County Grape Growers, have been put in contact, well, we thought about sustainability, sustainability is a big picture, and uh, what, what else can we do as farmers? Again, we're, we're evaluating what we're doing. You know, we, we're supposed to buy tractors that are the appropriate size for the task that you intend them to be used at in, uh, in the field. You, know, you don't buy a high horsepower tractor if you only need to have as many horsepower. Right. Fuel economy, all, 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 the, all economic reasons, consumption reasons, everything. Same thing, so you're always thinking like that. Rissa, I forget the conversations that took place. When you go into the field, there's limited options for uh, electrification of uh, equipment. You know, we're buying weed eaters now that are battery powered, which is more recently. But back then, our tractors, or most of us have diesel powered tractors. Uh, we have either gas or diesel powered pickup trucks. Our large trucks are all diesel powered, mostly some gas, but mostly diesel. So there's like, you know, in the, in the, in the context of sustainability, climate change, all the bigger picture things, even though we're little Sonoma County, but in the context of these bigger ideas, is there something that could be happening with this? And at some point, we just had casual conversations. I remember seeing you know, these brief ads either coming through on the internet with a link to Ford or on TV, a 10-second ad after a baseball game or something like that. And here they're talking about the Ford Lightnings. Right? You get a quick glimpse and that's kind of neat. Ford Lightning pickup truck. And they're good-looking trucks, you know, sort of appealing. You know, they, they played that one. And they're electric. And they're 100% electric. So, uh, uh, and, you know, we're familiar. Tesla's out there. Everybody's out there electric. Ford's started focusing on this, this pickup truck. So I actually signed up a year ago. I'm one of the 200,000 people that deposited 100 bucks <laughs> on a pickup truck long yep. before we had this discussion about Ford Pro. And uh, so August last year, uh, Chris got in touch with somebody who put her in touch with somebody else, and she finally got to somebody at Ford Pro. And that was in August of 21. You know, she announced that at one of our board meetings, or executive board meetings, I've talked to folks at Ford, and I was like, that's pretty exciting, you know, because I'd love to have a, you know, one just to try it, a Ford Lightning pickup truck, which is an F-150 truck, all electrified. So that was in August. Third or fourth week of September, she called, Chris had called me, 
along with all the other members of the executive board of the, of the Great Brewers, has said, I got two people from Ford going to be here for dinner at John Ash tonight at 6 o'clock, and you make it. You know, we're knee-deep in harvest. And I've got a little more freedom at harvest. And I said, yeah, well, I'll be there. And um, so I just you know, got up to the shower and put on some nicer clothes and got down at 6 o'clock. And uh, Steve Dutton got out of bed because he worked all night, the previous night. So I just was... Uh, Dutton Ranch. Dutton Ranch. So, okay. so Steve got up at... Well, four thirty or something like that. You know, been trying to sleep off the night before, <laughs> and he got there, and uh, and then uh, Marissa uh, Ledbetter Foster, she came as well. So we're the only three at the executive committee who uh, showed up for dinner that night, uh, just by luck. Is what it boils down because everybody else was just busy, and um, so the two reps from Fort, one flew from Detroit, and one from Sacramento, and uh, we charmed them. So we did. We ramped up our charming skills. Hard to believe. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> drank a lot of Sonoma County wine. <laughs> well, that's, well, that did it. <laughs> that was it. And uh, yeah, it was a great deal. So uh, uh, so I think what happened then is the two of them, uh, they reported back, obviously, that uh, everybody seemed to be legitimate. So that's end of September. So then Carissa stays in touch, and they organize uh, some more staff at the highest, higher levels uh, to come out in uh, November. And so the... Uh, so they came out. Now this time they did a tour of all of our facilities. They looked at the Dutton Ranch, they looked at my place, and they looked at the, the uh, Ledbetter, you know, Vino Farms is who it is, Ledbetter's operation. And and then the questions they were asking now were, so how many vehicles do you have? Now now they're looking for that level of legit- legitimacy right. of, you know, you got 25 pickup trucks, you got 23 uh, Ledbetters, and like 45 pickup trucks throughout California. And so they're not because they want to hurry up and sell hundred pickup trucks. They just want to see if we really are, are a, a potential partner to really help them evaluate the success, potential success of these vehicles in a farming operation, an so agriculture you're, operation. So you're, you're doing each other a favor, yeah. right? I mean, you wanted to try one of these, and they need to see. They need more input. How yeah, how these actually yeah, they, perform they, they, in the field? Yeah, they don't want you to go out and break it. They just want you to go out and use it like it's a normal little pickup, just like you're using your trucks now. How it performs in real world working. So I'm going to give that, you know, I've got two guys working for me who are in that that area where they do that kind of work for me. So they'll hit the, one of those guys will eventually get it after a couple of weeks. That's my, 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 my uh, goal. And so Ford's uh, not only pushing uh, the value of an electric vehicle, electric pickup truck, but they also have something called telematics, Ford telematics. And that is uh, where you... Uh, and you can do this either on, on, on the Lightning, but we also have a number of older, you know, Ford trucks we buy. As a matter of fact, I'm, I've got a new one coming, gas powered, coming here soon, uh, that we ordered four months ago, I guess. That you can monitor the, the, the act, activities of the truck. So you can monitor, uh, you, pl- you plug in when you want to do oil changes, you plug in when you want to do tire rotation, you plug right. in, and you do this from a, either a laptop or your PC in the office, and you've identified that. So the telematics at Ford will have direct contact with that pickup truck too. So we'll put in how we want to service it. We actually have to kind of unlearn what we know about vehicles because now it's all electric. And so you don't have an engine and transmission anymore. So there's no change in motor oil anymore. There's no service in the transmission anymore. It's all battery and there's some safety things we have to be do some training on. But you know still has brake pads, you know still has tires. <laughs> so we'll have to, so I think the list of the checklist for a, a, a carrier for these trucks is going to be pretty uh, pretty minimal going, going forward. So we're going to learn a lot about that. So we're we're excited about that. For 
Duff, that, uh, that, that it's pretty exciting to hear about these trucks that are electrifying. Yep. And what else has been electrifying is our time together. Okay. It's been great. I really genuinely appreciate you taking the time to be with me on the podcast. Today. No, I'm, I'm happy to be here. This is fascinating. Learning all about sustainability, learning about the Ford Pro Project. Uh, and uh, this is just, and uh, I can't thank you enough for spending the time here at the Healdsburg Food and Wine Experience. Well, I'm glad you came up to see us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Right. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. Please join me next week when my special guest will be Steve San Giacomo, a third generation farmer from Sonoma County. Until then, do good, drink well. <laughs>